Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is C.M. Alexander with the news. Renowned widow Jennifer Grunwald was found dead in her hot tub late last night. Evidence at the scene led police to the conclusion of accidental death. Next-door neighbor Curtis Johnson gave a statement that appears to support the police's theory, saying she was never in the hot tub without her favorite stereo and extension cord. He concluded, It's shocking this hadn't happened sooner. You're listening to Dairy Public Radio. This is Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King book club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside CM Alexander. Hello, everyone. And joining us on the show today is Chicago-based writer-director who began his career working for the Sci-Fi Channel on titles like Man with the Screaming Brain and Puppet Master vs. Demonic Toys. He is best known for his 2015 micro-budget horror comedy, Killer Pinata, with a sequel in production. But we know him from his dollar baby, A Very Tight Place. Please welcome to the show, Stephen Tramontana. Stephen, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm so excited to be a part of this. I feel like it's like meeting a new friend due to this really cool thing that uh, Baker Street put together. So Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the, the sense of community the entire Stephen King Rules Dollar Baby Film Fest has created now is just so amazing. I was not prepared for that part of it. <laughs> I really, it was such a fun... I don't know. I didn't think you could replicate like a true festival experience and how they put that whole thing together with like the chats and stuff. I mean, Mm -hmm. at least on like Friday night, we were going, it felt almost like punch drunk with just everybody coming in. It was cool. What a cool thing. Yeah, it was wild. Hopefully we, uh, we get to do it all again sometime next year. That'd be (laughs) All right. Well, before we get to the interview, I'm going to throw things over to CM as she holds the keys to the kingdom of this interview and you have to proceed past CM to get to the rest of the show. Okay, let's let's see. Here we go. Yeah. And Josh, Josh made it sound very dramatic. It is not that dramatic. If you answer wrong, it's okay. You just might find yourself in a very tight place. (laughs) But I regret that. I'm sorry. um, Should we just start again? (laughs) (laughs) You know, when I edit this, I'm just going to cut myself out of the whole thing. thing. (laughs) All right. My first question for you is, what was your introduction to Stephen King's work? So my mom read me Stephen King stories as a a kid. I mean, nothing like she would go with like the kind of spookier short stories. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I still have all of her like first edition Stephen King books. Like she's a really big fan. And I think if you were a kid growing up in the eighties, he was just everywhere. He's everywhere now, but it felt like in the eighties, Stephen King was horror. So, but I, I remember, yeah, I heard his words before I read them. Do you remember any particular one of those being your favorite to have your mom read? Maybe not a particular story, but I remember Skeleton Crew was (laughs) was <laughs> kind of at the top because I thought the cover was so cool. Even like the, the cover didn't scare me as a kid. I just thought that it was like a great design. <laughs> yeah. So when she would bring that one in, I'd be like, oh, yes. Skeleton <laughs> 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 crew time. So, That's yeah. amazing. Your mom kicks ass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I told you before that, uh, like I remember like some of my earliest memories is that she would definitely put me to bed by putting Thriller on. So I think like <laughs> a lot of the land travel, like, she's just like, see the Thriller like Van Halen 1984. I was like, man you're so metal (laughs) i've mentioned this before on our episodes i think that makes for better adults when you grow up 
being exposed to horror movies and and all the cool concepts that kind of fly over our heads, but later they must stick with us in some way because I think horror fans just turn into such cool adults. I would agree with that a hundred percent. I find overwhelmingly horror fans as a community are more just like open and accepting. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think just because of the content of what we all love, there's some there tends to sometimes be some judgment. But if you spend time like at a horror con or something yeah. like this, you're like, wow, what a absolutely lovely group of people. You know, uh, every time yeah, for sure. So my my final gatekeeping question on our podcast, we talk about what we call Stephen King moments, and these are parts in his work that terrify you or disturb you or stick with you in some way could be positive or negative. And they don't have to be outright scary things. Sometimes they are mundane things that, you know, because it's Stephen King, it's somehow the most terrifying thing you've ever read, even though it's not really anything at all. Do you have a Stephen King moment? You know, it's funny, to your point, it's not the scare stuff that sticks to me. I find myself thinking about Hearts in Atlantis a lot. Yeah. Um, I think that is his most human work. And I've only read it twice, which is a funny thing, because I adore the book. And I think it's just where he got everything right about, you know, childhood Mm -hmm. and the promise and the fear of adulthood and everything that went in there. And I think about various parts of that book a lot. You know, the guy posing as a homeless person when he's really getting all the money and the whole thing in the college where the kids are playing the the card game, desperately hoping they don't get sent to war. Such a such a good book. Would you consider that book among like one of your top favorites or do you have another that you prefer? I mean, I know it's hard to pick <laughs> and yeah. I can never do it. Like just pick <laughs> one. Just give me one Stephen King book that's just, your favorite. Desert book. Island Stephen King. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. I, I think in terms of his like truly like scary stuff, Pet Cemetery hands down. Mm -hmm. I just think it's a perfect, gothic, crazy book that just all worked out very well. Yeah, I would say like the top would probably be that, Hearts and Atlantis, and then Needful Things. Needful Things sticks with me. I love that book. (laughs) Needful Things is beautiful. You just mentioned two of our podcast favorites. So I guess even though mine wasn't on there, I guess you pass. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That'd been amazing though if you were like, well, Sorry, it didn't work out. Thank I, you. Just, I just ended. Well, so well, thank you so much for stopping by. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, as a, a filmmaker, I would like really interested of what are your favorite Stephen King adaptations? It's funny. So, definitely, I think Pet Cemetery. I'll go back to that. Not to like keep going back to this, but let's clarify: eighty-nine Pet Cemetery. Eighty-nine. <laughs> <laughs> Everything about that worked, and they did a good job translating him. And I know King wrote the script himself, but and I know, like, kind of in hindsight, some of it is a little, you know, the production maybe is like TV shows to, to some folks, but I, I just thought, you know, every aspect of it. And a fun story about this really quick. About seven years ago, a high school, an alternative high school in Austin asked, reached out and said, would you come in and talk to our students about what it's like to make horror films? We think that they'd be interested in that. They don't really get opportunities to hear about that. And I'm not a teacher. And so I was like, well, what do I tell these kids, you know, how do I do this? And I thought, I bet you these kids have never read or seen Pet Cemetery. Let's let's try it out. And what we're going to do is I'm going to show them chunks of the movie and we're going to make it interactive. And so at the beginning of the class, I asked them, any of you guys seen this? No. <laughs> so I showed them the intro then I paused it and I said, where do you think this is going to go? And, you know, had them pitch out like where they thought all this. And we would just do that. Chunk here, Pascal, uh, all that. And none of these kids throughout anything nearly as grim as where King was going to be. And I remember we got to the gauge truck sequence Ooh. and that group was 
thunderstruck. I mean, they just never, it never occurred to them that it was going to go to this place. And so at the very end, we watched the scene, uh, Lewis taking uh, Rachel out. And we got into this big discussion about like why when enough is enough and why he couldn't these big thematic things. And it was wonderful to explore this material with these high school kids because they definitely were into it. I was like, all right, we've messed all these kids up. This is (laughs) really, really good stuff. So, yeah, I'd say like Pet Cemetery is up there. And I thought of the recent stuff, It Chapter One. Yeah, I went and saw that back to back. I thought they just It Chapter One was marvelous. I, ooh. Okay, I'm nervous to ask this because agree with you 100%. Pet Cemetery, the original, so amazing. And it doesn't hurt any that, I mean, he's an adult now, but that little boy, Gage, was probably the most adorable child I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and you hate to see him killed. And it, chapter one, was really great. Pet Cemetery, the newest one. I don't know if I'm super biased to it because it had more of a, a female centric focus. So, I think I forgave a lot of it because it was nice to kind of to feel more like, oh, I, I can relate to some of these things in these characters a little more. What is your opinion on the remake where it fell short for a lot of Stephen King fans? I understand those sentiments. I, I was there, too. And it's not that, you know, being a guy that made a pretty sizable change to the Stephen King adaptation, like I get it and I get the idea of playing around with the material. But I think the problem was by making spoiler alert, by making it Ellie mm-hmm. and not Gage, it fundamentally changed the the point of the story. Now it was a story about a grieving family trying to kind of figure this all out, as opposed to a guy that was trying to play God mm-hmm. and really getting the ramifications. And so throughout the third act in particular, I was like all messed up because I was like, as a concept, I like what they're doing here. And in terms of just like the story of, of parents with their kind of dead daughter. I was like, it just doesn't work as a, as a pet cemetery thing because we've gone so far away from what this story was supposed to be mm-hmm. that it's now just distracting, you know, that, that we've changed Lewis's journey. We kind of traded Lewis's journey for this new Ellie journey. And I don't know that that's as successful. I disagreed. I read the interview with the filmmakers that said that they, their concern, and, and I understand this too, is that if you get Gage in there, it kind of comes off Chucky-like. And, <laughs> you know, I thought... The problem, though, is Gage is a wonderful monster. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. And they didn't, I mean, and to your point, in the 89, he works great for, for what they have, mm-hmm. you know, in his vocal performance, you know, the mommy play with Judd and play with you, and it's just mm-hmm. incredible. But I was like, the idea that you could take today's technology and, and puppet effects and the way to do it and really have a run at this, like, exquisite monster and not take that shot, I just, I, I think that's kind of a bummer. I was like, it'd be interesting to see someone really roll with Gage with what we have now, the tools we have now. So yeah, yeah, it didn't work for me. <laughs> I, even, even if it had been a little Chucky, like what's wrong with that? That's fun. <laughs> yeah, I like Chucky. <laughs> I do <okay>? too. <laughs> I forgive a lot in my horror movies. Cheesy. Cam- <laughs> I mean, it's all good. No, that's, I, I appreciate that perspective. That's a really interesting way to come at it because I knew it wasn't as good and I knew their changes didn't quite weren't quite pulled off and I couldn't tell why. And I knew it wasn't just because, oh, well, now we're focusing on women and oh, women. But <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of, I would like to watch that again. And as best as I can divorce myself from the source material and just look at it as its own thing and see where I land on it. Well, and it's tough too. Like part of the things that I liked about the the first version of it was these little set-asides, right? That that Judd would come in and when you're hearing about, you know, Timmy and, and his dog and mm-hmm. there's like this weird 
folklore aspect to the first try at this that works very, very well. I feel bad for John Lithgow because he's amazing, like yes, a legend. Yeah. But like Fred Gwynn is a tough <laughs> act to follow, man, because that's the voice I hear all the time, you know, the Pet Cemetery Lewis. And I annoy uh, Jen, our producer, I annoy her all the time with Judd stuff because I just <laughs> love doing that voice and soft that. <laughs> My husband kind of ruined the movie for all of us because he did an impression of him, but instead of saying dead is better, he would say dad is butter. <laughs> if you say it, if you say it fast can... enough, it sounds right. Sometimes dad is butter. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's fun to do that accent. Yeah. That, you know. <laughs> Staying on that train, what are some of your least favorite adaptations? So definitely the one we were just talking about, mm-hmm. the the Pet Cemetery, that just didn't work for all those reasons for me. And you know what? Honestly, again, on the other side, I can't believe we're going back to this, but like it chapter two. For, for as much as I adored the, the first run at that, and I think about that adaptation a lot because that was a situation where you had all the main creatives. And I know that, that there was an adjustment in director and stuff for the first chapter, but I was like, for the most part, you had your same team, one of the screenwriters back, a lot of that continuity that you'd be like, oh, you know, they obviously figured this out and it just, it didn't work. So I think a lot about it, chapter two and like <laughs> just what happened there. So those would probably be my my two kind of least favorites in this yeah. category. I, I was so excited about it, chapter one and two, about the breaking mm-hmm. it up in the timeline stories. But all it did is reinforce that the kids' side of the story is way more interesting than the adult side. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I kind of came to that conclusion, too. I was like, we've had two runs at this now. The first part, of, or the, I guess the kids' part is intertwined, but the, the kids' part of that book is phenomenal. So we should just, as a society, say, that's how we adapt it now. Yeah. <laughs> Take the kids' side, and that's it. And then we just kind of wonder about what they did as adults. So. You're tapping into something with the kids' story that, unfortunately for all of us as adults, you can never recapture that. Yeah, and, and it's funny because one of my favorite parts of it as a book actually happens in the adult stuff. And of course, I'm saying this is favorite, and the name is the, the bully, the kid that uh, goes to the insane asylum. Wait, Henry? Henry no. Bowers. Henry, yeah. Henry Bowers. I love that part of it. I love the idea of this guy in an insane asylum mm-hmm. and his dead buddy, you know, talking. I mean, it's so, <laughs> it's so cool. Yeah. yeah. And it, it absolutely kills me that it happens in the part of the book that you can't adapt. (laughs) Yeah. So I think that to your point and to King's point as like a writer, he does such a good job of getting us all back in those shared experiences. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, man, I remember bumming around with my friends on bikes and like getting into trouble and it was great. (laughs) We didn't have a clown, but. (laughs) (laughs) So with all of that said, and having made an adaptation of your own, in your opinion, what makes a good adaptation? So I, I think the key term is translation. It's a distinct distinction because until you've really done it, in a very tight place was one of the few times I've adapted. Um, I adapted a Shirley Jackson uh, short into a feature. So that was my first like taste of trying adaption. And this was like definitely the biggest adaption work. And because it came slippery like that, because he writes very cinematically, he's mm-hmm. very visual. And so you trick yourself into being like, oh, I think we can kind of do a one-to-one. And as long as we just put it down the page, it'll work. And I don't think that's the case at all. I think because he is so in his characters' heads and he has that luxury of walking through their motivations and all you're left with is action. So then the first question is like, how do I translate all this emotion and all this backstory into something 
one that we can sell on screen and two that an actor can do something with because it doesn't really help them to be like well you know he knew this guy back then and did all this it's like yeah great but how do i act that so <laughs> it's a, it really is trying to like translate one language to another trying to keep the foundation of that first language as much as possible so i think arguably the most successful adaptation has definitely been the shining just from a pop culture standpoint yeah. from a you know everything and that was one that took some very big liberties you know <laughs> yeah. and, you know, notoriously is not a fan but i think that's the case right is like how do we how do we take the the guts of this thing and make it and it's an experience that kind of translates right because it can never truly be the book and, and so it it chapter one and two is a great example mm-hmm. it chapter one took some liberties but they found a way to kind of keep what made that first part special and it chapter two felt like a one-to-one translation and and if and, and you could feel it like the hotel stuff kind of became a little repetitive where in the book mm-hmm. you're like oh you can hear in their heads what's going on and there's new information for this but when you're just watching it as action it, it just it doesn't land as, as well as it should so the idea i think you have to start with is what was king going for here you know just to be like respectful of your source material like what what was the intent and then of his writing how much of this can we pull across and then are these big sections here that we need to kind of butts around with just to to get a, a proper translation going so i think that's the, the biggest part of it yeah there's definitely a spectrum that adaptations can fall on sort of in how they change, just like what you said. And I find I'm kind of all over the place on that spectrum as far as what I appreciate (laughs) about adaptations. We just covered Thinner recently, and I thought that that was a really good adaptation because they made the character more likable in the beginning because he was kind of goofy and lighthearted, it seemed. And that works better, I think, on film. You know, otherwise you have just this depraved, very dark movie, you have to have something to kind of balance that. So a situation like that, where they're changing it, but it's still true to the spirit of it. And it's a change that obviously serves a purpose of working better in that media. I appreciate those too. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Well, and, and uh, Tom Holland directed. Uh, yes. Yeah. And he did maybe not a straight adaptation, but one of his big ones, uh, big first jobs was Psycho 2. So he had the, you know, insane task of trying to like do another Norman Bates story. And he made a a smart decision there too, because again, spoiler for anyone who's seen Psycho 2, Norman's not the killer in Psycho 2. (laughs) Norman is, uh, at least for most of Psycho 2. Yeah. Um, He's a sympathetic character, Yeah, he's way relatable. Totally. Yeah. Like they did a great job, like finding a way to keep that character interesting and moving forward. And so, yeah, I, I think that like Tom does really good work on figuring out like, how do we take again what works about all this like you know thinner is one of those wonderful books because just the nature of what's happening like this body horror kind mm-hmm. of thing that's like going on it sells really well so to, to to make that character likable is a good call definitely in his wheelhouse now you adapted the short story a very tight place into your short film through the dollar baby process for anybody who hasn't read it can you summarize what the story is about Yes. So it's about these two fabulously wealthy neighbors in Florida who get into a property dispute. And it's very ugly and involves a a dog dying and all kinds of things going on and lawsuits. One day, this one neighbor, Tim Grunwald, calls Curtis, our hero, and says, Grunwald says to Curtis, listen, this property thing has gone way too far. I'm going to sign it over to you. I'm done. I'm out of it. Just meet me at one of my construction sites and we'll do the paperwork and be gone. So Curtis comes down to the construction site, finds Grunwald there with a gun 
and Grunwald <laughs> by gunpoint forces Curtis into a porta potty and then pushes the porta potty on its side so Curtis can't escape. And the rest of the story is this man trapped at a porta potty in the baking hot Florida sun trying to figure out if he's going to get out or literally die in this like tomb. So yeah, survivalist story, you know, revenge story. It's great. (laughs) I do love a good revenge story. Revenge stories are my jam. (laughs) What made you choose a very tight place? I remember from the jump, like the moment I read that short story, I was kind of shocked that it didn't get pulled immediately because I was like, I don't think it would make a great feature film. It's not like a Shawshank where Mm -hmm. you can like pull things out of it and and do more. It, It seems like it's perfect for like a TV show or anthology. I remember thinking like, oh, if I ever got the opportunity to join something like a creep show or a Tales from the Crypt or something like that, I would pitch them like, let me have a very tight place. <laughs> like, I want to do <laughs> the perfect morsel uh, of a story to, to do it. So um, over the years, I actually didn't think it was going to be available. I was shocked that because if you go to do for those who haven't like got in the dollar baby thing, there's a selection of titles that are available to you. And so when I checked and a very tight place was there, it was like the best feeling. So I was like, let's <laughs> go. let's do this. That's amazing. Can you walk us through the process of applying for your dollar baby? And how confident were you that your pitch would be selected? For those wondering it, it is a much easier process than, than you I never thought that I'd be doing a dollar baby. And so when I went on the website, um, they make it really easy. They have a you know form there. You can fill out with the title of what you want and they're, very, very communicative, super fast response, which is something. I mean, especially when we're dealing with like Stephen King and it's his office, I would get responses back within like 48 hours. Oh, wow. I mean, yeah. Sonic boom level responses. In terms of confidence, I was more confident than I would have been like a few months before. So we had done Killer Pinata and Killer Pinata by design is a very cheap looking movie. You know, we wanted <laughs> to kind of get that high school movie vibe. And I think if we would have shown them just Killer Pinata, we would they would have said no. <laughs> <laughs> we made a really pretty horror short called Eyelash right after Killer Pinata. And that's actually the one that I sent to them because I was like, this is the kind of like true filmmaking that we're going to try to bring to this and like our concentration. And when I sent them the Eyelash screener, it was a very fast yes. And they gave us our year to work on it. And we're just very lovely to, to deal with. So I, I thank Eyelash for getting us across the line on that. <laughs> <laughs> That's so awesome. Now, you have to make a lot of consideration uh, when adapting a story to a screenplay like we've been talking about. And you made some changes in that process. Can you walk us through your writing process and the changes that you made? Sure. So this one was weird because it was directed a lot by time. I get and internally my partners make fun of me because I write very long stories in like our short films, you know, eyelashes 30 minutes and you know, we just struggle to make a two minute short film. And so I was like, I am bound into, ter- we are going to make a very tight place 10 to 15 minutes. That's going to be our goal. We're going to work backwards from that. I knew that I wanted thematically it to begin and end with Curtis looking at the death of a Grunwald. We would, Mm-hmm. Start and end at the same place, but he'd be a fundamentally different person by the time the next Grunwald died. <laughs> and so for timing, it, it got tough because I forgot how much dialogue there was when Grunwald and is trying to get him into the porta potty with the with the gun. There's a lot. It's a it's basal exposition. Like there's a ton <laughs> of and, and dialogue's an absolute killer for time. It just eats mm-hmm. up your time. Oh, yeah. So that was the I literally had to sit with those pages for a, a couple of weeks and try to figure out like what are our most important, what, what do we want to keep? 
and Stephen King's dialogue in this short story is phenomenal. So I was like, I really want to try to get as much of it Mm -hmm. as I can out. And then we'll just have to try to bridge everything else. So time really drove a lot of it. And then the change, like on our budget and our schedule, I was going to fool no one that Chicago was Florida. (laughs) Okay. So like um, one of the aspects of the short story I love is him on his, on his bicycle cruising through Florida, but that just wasn't going to work. It's just not a Chicago thing. We had to lean into our architecture. Uh, So I was really happy. Jamie, who did the other version of a very tight place, Mm -hmm. Vinton's lot um, for the fest, he was able to get the bicycle stuff in. So I thought that was really cool. That shocked me. I did not realize it at the time that Vinton's lot was an alternate title for a very tight place. So seeing those two in the same fest, I was like, this is awesome. (laughs) Getting to see those two very different tones. I And I really loved what both of you did for your adaptations. You added more women. Yeah, he didn't tell me that. Jamie and I were talking before the fest. I was like, you didn't tell me you gender swapped. <laughs> but I thought it was cool. And he's, and he's such mm-hmm. a lovely person. And so, yeah, during the weekend, we were kind of chatting about it. And I, to your point earlier, like there's like fraternity of filmmakers and, and a culture around the dollar babies. And the filmmakers are very much a part of that. It's such a supportive, mm-hmm. cool group to like chat with. And and I think within that group, the, those of us who work with porta potties, you know, <laughs> like, just relate to all the, they're, they're a hard co-star to direct. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Uh, well, speaking of the, the gender swapping, that was one of the biggest changes you made is you, you changed it to the wife instead of the, the husband. What was the idea behind that? thank God Stephen King does interviews. Cause I was really nervous. I really wanted to do that. And I was afraid that if we did that, we might upset him because we just basically threw out one of his characters. <laughs> and he found that uh, Stephen King's not that precious. He's open to it. He was yeah. cool with what Frank Darabout did with the mist and he's made changes himself. So I was like, ah, I think we can try to do this. Going back to translation for a second. The, the biggest problem I had is that I just don't buy if these two guys have been in such an insane legal battle and everything, if one calls the other and is like, Hey, meet me at this abandoned construction site, <laughs> everything will be fine. <laughs> you just, you know, everybody in the world is like, that's a trap. You yeah. know? <laughs> he has that luxury of having a couple of pages to be like, well, he didn't believe him, but maybe something to work. You know, we just, mm-hmm. we just don't have that. So I thought that making it the wife, also made it a much more complicated scenario because you can understand how she would be upset about this death and, you know, you get her perspective. And it allowed us to work with Joette Waters, who was with us in, in Killer Pinata, and she's been with us in all of our shorts. And she's kind of like, um, I mean, Joette's just been every every filmmaking crew in Chicago you talk to, she, they've worked like she's a <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> you know, um, and she's very lovely to work with and very fun to work with. Um, so I, I thought it would be really cool to give Joette like this this character. And it was tough to create Ginny because Ginny, as described in the, in the story, is kind of a younger trophy wife. She's just briefly mentioned and she's out the door. And so what I tried to do was get kind of the spirit of Grunwald and the spirit of what King was trying to accomplish with his dialogue and motivations and then marry it to kind of the grief of a, of a widow, mm-hmm. you know? So that um, you pulled it off. Yeah. You <laughs> absolutely awesome. nailed it. I mean, and it's fun to give those lines. like my favorite line in the piece, is, you know, is when she's talking about justice, you know, and mm-hmm. she's got, she's just eating that dialogue up and that's King's line. And it's my favorite part in, in the whole thing. I just love it. Yeah. She did an amazing job, but yeah, you're hundred percent right there. I totally buy the, grieving widow side of it and 
it was even better the uh, the look on your lead actor's face when she pulls the gun out. <laughs> the the mix of oh shit and oh, I can't believe I fell for this <laughs> was yeah. just priceless. Yeah, and it was fun because we'd have those conversations. So Danny uh, was our lead, and and we had wanted to work with him. Uh, he was very close to working with us in eyelash, and so when we started to get this together. We just went to him. We didn't even audition. We just said, Danny, you want to do the movie. And so he and Joette and I would have these kind of long conversations about, you know, is there a good guy in this story? Is there a bad guy? <laughs> in this story? Like, how do we how do we play these dynamics? And we all just came to the conclusion that like, no, there's we just have to throw out the dynamics. Like they're all very human, and they all have their motivations, and we're just mm-hmm. going to work through all this. And there's no, we're not going to frame anybody as a hero. We're just going for it. So, well, it's the dog. Betsy's the hero. Yeah. <laughs> now, filming in Chicago, certainly not the easiest place in the world to film, but you managed to find the perfect location for this abandoned construction site. How did you secure that location? Man, talk about a sigh of relief. So, <laughs> we couldn't get anybody to approve us for filming. Oh, and we wow. Had, we had production insurance. We know what we're doing. We met with every construction site in the world and there were some good ones and they just were really nervous about the liability of having a crew on a construction site and we were getting about three weeks out from when we had booked the actors and all of our equipment to shoot and we didn't have a location and i was starting to freak out because i was like we don't have time to do prep um and i'm not sure how we film a place we haven't done a proper location scout and finally the city of chicago said hey look we have this old housing project. It's legitimately the the oldest housing project we've ever built in Chicago. And right now we're going through a process of rehabbing the whole thing. So it's completely empty and it has been for six months. If you want to shoot there, you can, we'll give it to you for a day. And the only request we have is that you bring on two of the residents from that project to help on the shoot. They would like mm-hmm. to learn about filmmaking. Cool. And um, wow. they, were, they were awesome. Like these guys, <laughs> They came in and they knew nothing about it. I said, all right, which one of you guys wants to work the clap? You know, (laughs) this guy was so wanted. He was so good. He was like, once he had like the basics down, man, he was like correcting us. Like we were talking about something. (laughs) Like, no, 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 it's this. (laughs) 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 He's great. So they got to join us and we came in for one day. We got a full 12 in and uh, yeah, everything you see on cameras was what we were working with. And it was eerie. And very helpful. I mean, it was set dressed, but yeah, it was <laughs> funny because we had the gun and I forgot because we're kind of abandoned, but there's another project kind of sitting across the street from it. Uh, so I'm walking around the prop gun and, and one of the, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> you know, don't be walking around like that. Uh, so it was a, it was a really cool day and I'm very appreciative of the city of Chicago for, for making that, that for us. So that's great. Yeah, that's awesome. So I imagine when you were, you know, your other location, which was the Porter Potty, you mm. probably had that very well thought out. The The issues of filming in that type of spot, were there any things that occurred that you didn't anticipate or expect that you had to kind of creatively problem solve? Sure. Yeah. So we shot this on an iPhone. Um, we specifically thought an iPhone would be the best way to do it just because of the location. Mm-hmm. And what we realized is that a porta potty is remarkably sturdy. Like the plastic on it is very tough to manipulate and you can't get light through. I thought we could just throw lights. If we, if we hit it with a big light on the outside, we could kind of replicate the sun because we were shooting the porta potty interior scenes inside a garage. 
And so we were trying to hit it with a bunch of light to replicate the sunlight. And in some cases, we just couldn't get it through. So we actually had to start carving out like handsaw. Oh, my God. Carving the chunks out of this thing to, to get enough light in there to see Danny. So it was, it was tougher in that way. And I mean, we were pulling the bottom out of it. You know, we, I mean, mm-hmm. these things are so well constructed that like, I was thinking going in, oh, we're going to have to, you know, make some modifications to sell how difficult this is. And after being, <laughs> I mean, we had a fresh porta potty. So that porta potty was ours. And mm-hmm. I crawling around in there, I was like, oh no, you could definitely see how this could happen. If this thing fell over, you, you wouldn't be getting out. Like it's, it's tough. Wow, I I would have had the same thought, and I'm I'm sure many listeners would think, well, how how really stuck? You know, I could just bust my way out of there <laughs> if I had to, because it's life and death. But that's really interesting to hear how. I mean, obviously Stephen King knows what he's talking about. I'm sure he does his homework, but that <laughs> retroactively makes that story a, a little more terrifying for me than it originally was. Uh, same here. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> the best thing I can tell you is if it happens kick for the top. The ceiling seems to be the weak point. <laughs> Good advice. <laughs> so go the opposite direction that you went in the story. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Don't try to get yourself out. Oh the my God. How long were you filming in that porta potty? How much time did you spend in there? Oh yeah, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because we really tried a different um, production approach with this one where we didn't set like a, like, so for killer pinata, we shot killer pinata in seven days like all day, every day, just going. And same with eyelash. Eyelash, I think, was four days in a row. And so for this one, we were like, no, we want to shoot, you know, a couple of days, make sure that we really got the footage where we want it, and then we'll schedule the next batch. So we're actually shooting off and on from September to December. And the interior of the porta potty was the last thing we filmed, and we were geniuses and filmed that in December. Oh, no. (laughs) Well, not as hot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's funny because we had to give Danny ice cubes and stuff between the takes so that we didn't see his breath. We had to try to get, you know, his mouth <laughs> yeah. warm. <laughs> and we shot, I think, for two days um, in that porta potty, like long days. So we went outside. We were outside in the snow for when he was standing up. Mm-hmm. And then when it actually tipped over, then we dragged it inside the garage and carved out a bunch of things. And um, But we really you know, really couldn't communicate. He was really walled off from us. Like I was, we could see him in the monitor, but I was like yelling to him because we couldn't really mm-hmm. get in there with him. Yeah. So I think the only time I did was towards the end when he had to get out and it just like, I just had to get him in a different way. So I crawled in there with him. He and I were hanging out in the porta potty and all <laughs> through it trying to figure out how to do this. But uh, yeah, it was, I appreciate Danny because it had to have been very isolating mm-hmm. and, just covered in that stuff for as long as we had him in there in the freezing cold. You know, what a champ. <laughs> Whatever happened to the porta potty? Fun story. So that was in our my backyard for a whole winter because I was <laughs> terrified that we may have missed something. And, you know, we just yeah. could <laughs> Spring had come and my wife was like, it's time. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe it's done. So I open it up and it's just gnarly because we didn't clean it out or anything. So it's like, just like mildew and stuff. And what I learned is that the city of Chicago, if you put something back there, they have to take it. Like the garbage truck has to crush it. (laughs) Garbage guys, I wait for them. They come on Monday. So I waited for them and they pulled it. I go, listen, I got porta potty. And can you crush it? The dudes were like, yes. Wait, what is this from? And I was like, oh, we made a a short film about Stephen Stephen King's story. And he goes, oh, it's a Stephen King movie? And I was like, hmm, hold on. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to get a national release, man. Like, this isn't some, like, prop that you keep, you know, in your house. But they did it. So I took a little video, and we made a little goodbye video to the porta potty. (laughs) 
put it in the in the garbage truck to crush it. And the first time, it almost actually killed me because the um, angle was wrong. So when it started to crush it, the porta potty rocketed out of the garbage oh, truck. No. Right at me. Oh my god! <laughs> that is a different kind of movie. <laughs> I was like, that would have been a heck of a way to end the experience murdered by my own porta potty. <laughs> put it back in and it crushed it down in like record time, like nothing. I mean, it just it just busted it all down. So that was it. Bye, porta potty. Well, you have you basically have the sequel. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a true story. I think we can working with this and let's just see how it goes. You know, I was telling Jen that we really messed up. I was reading the other day that there's a porta potty shortage for some reason. Uh, nation, <laughs> or something. I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> could have made it big, yeah. <laughs> even though there was holes cut in the side. <laughs> you know, we could have we could have patched that a little wood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then you got to pay a thousand dollars for the lumber. So That's, then you yeah. have to turn oh, a profit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and something. So, uh, what has the response been to people finally seeing a very tight place? So it's been great. I'm. I'm mystified by it. It's been the only movie I've ever made in my career where after the screenings, our screenings always go well. And and it's been the one time where people come up and say, oh, did you make A Very Tight Place? I really liked that film. And as a director, it's, it's such a nice feeling. We did only okay on the film festival circuit in terms of getting into fests. Um, the fest that took us, we did very, very well. And we were invited by the George Eastman Museum to come up and screen the movie. And that was kind of our final screening of the of the festival run. Clearly, people inside George Eastman had seen it because they would, as I was getting a tour, they were like, oh, did you do a very tight place? We loved that short. Mm-hmm. It was just, it, it had its fans. And so it's like a weird thing to be like, man, we we only did okay in terms of festival selection. But the movie where it did play, plays well and continues to have very you know, responsive screening. So it's something I can't quite figure out. <laughs> it's like, eh, people like it, but the film festivals did not love us. So yeah, that's, um, that's crazy. Cause it, it's beautiful. It looks great. The acting is great. It's a really awesome adaptation. We enjoyed it. Yeah. And at the end of the day, we're really happy with it internally. I mean, I'm, it, it hit what I wanted to try to accomplish when, when I thought about adapting it. So um, yeah, I wish we would have done better on the festivals, but I'm, I'm thrilled with what we have. So there you go. Now you had stopped, had you stopped sending this to festivals before the dollar baby film festival happened? Yeah. So this is a weird thing just because we try to do about a short a year. So um, we moved on at that point. We actually started filming the short we had that was supposed to go off in the pandemic year about three weeks after we finished post on a very tight place. And I thought that would kind of be it. And, you know, with this, with the dollar babies, you can't really, you can't publicly show them. Right. Um, that's forbidden. You can only do it through film festivals. And we've found this really lovely thing where they're doing a, a, quite a few dollar baby film festivals worldwide now. And so we'll have those programmers reach out to us and say, we'd like mm-hmm. to include a very tight place. And so I said, it's it's nice that um, it'll definitely be played for the next you know, a couple of years as these mm-hmm. festivals continue to go. And that's a, that's a good feeling. So yeah, um, we get outreaches from the dollar baby film festivals and, and get included that way. So it's, it's nice for that. That's so awesome. So if you could give a piece of advice to anybody who was looking to make a dollar baby of their own, what piece of advice would you give them? I would say do it. It's easier than you think. And Stephen King's people are very lovely. So don't be intimidated, you know, and don't be afraid to, uh, reach out to other dollar baby filmmakers. These aren't these folks aren't a competitive bunch. I mean, I was having great conversations with the guy that did the same movie that that we did. <laughs> <in the same laughs> 
and it was so wonderful. It wasn't, there just wasn't any ego or anything. And, and I wish I would have reached out and to the folks that did a very tight place. They did a dollar baby version of it, I think in 2012 or 13. Um, I think they're over in England. I wish I would have reached out to them and just said, Hey, you know, what advice do you have for, you know, working with porta potty, like lighting stuff, you know, I mm-hmm. probably could have solved some problems if I just um, reached out to them sooner. So uh, if you're doing it or considering doing it, it's easy to connect with all these directors and all these filmmakers. Um, and they're happy to share advice or equipment or anything like that. So don't be afraid. It's interesting that that reflects the nature of the horror community as being a group of people who are more gracious and collaborative with one another. And of course, a Stephen King dollar baby thing would also be collaborative and supportive in that same way. That's really cool. Yeah. And it's something I haven't experienced with many other groups of filmmakers. So I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just everybody because of the shared experience knows mm-hmm. like the terror of trying to like not mess it up and, yeah. Like, yeah. Go through and just this whole thing. So that part of it's been, been great. And in that festival, the Baker street really just cemented that when you're like, Oh, and, and hopefully they get to do it again. And I imagine it's going to be even bigger and, and more fun and everybody on the chats mm-hmm. and stuff. So, um, yeah, so it, it's good for other filmmakers who might be considering this, like, you know, don't reinvent the wheel. Um, feel free if someone's done something similar to, to see what they went through and help your production out a little bit. Yeah, it's Dollar Babies are such a a passion project. Yeah, We had so, you know, we were doing those uh, the haikus for all yeah. of the, the films and we got a comment on one of them that said, it, why is everything getting five out of five blue chambray shirts? Because blue chambray shirts is how we rate things on the show. And my response was every the, all of these people deserve that because like they there's so little to I guess gain from doing a dollar baby beyond putting your passion and your talent on display for people who want to see it. It's a it's a very small window of what you can really get out of it, and part of the community I think is part of that. Yeah, I would agree with that a hundred percent. And that's right. Yeah, passion is the best way to do it because it's you know, <laughs> folks that that may not have the mo- most massive budgets, you know, trying to get this stuff across, and it it taxes everything creatively, all your energy. So yeah, a lot of respect to to the groups that that do this. How did you land on that rating system, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was a joke in our very for the first episode. First three episodes were Carrie. And when we got done with the book, uh, our co-host, our third host, Ben, who isn't here, pitched this. He's like, we can change this later if this sounds dumb, but I think we should rate everything a one to five blue chambray shirts. Yeah, because it's and you don't realize it until you hear it, that there's a blue chambray shirt in almost every King book. Somebody is wearing a blue chambray shirt. There's always a reference. (laughs) Amazing! I never picked up on that. So. Oh yeah! <laughs> now you'll ever when you read it. If you're like, you hey, there it is. Yes. Yeah, uh, in uh, Shawshank, they're wearing chambray. That's the, right. Yeah. <laughs> There's a, a oh uh, in Salem's Salem's Lot, Lot the yep, very Father first Callahan blue chambray shirt. Wearing a blue chambray shirt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Once I caught the joke uh, on the second haiku, I was like, yes. Uh, so what what interests you right now what's next for you so we're doing uh we actually shooting on wednesday our next short and we're gonna do we're kind of gonna go back to the goofy killer pinata roots it's called boogeyman about a kind of a masked 
uh, slasher who decides that he really just wants to dance. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Outstanding. So we're super excited about that. And then July is when we start in earnest doing our prep for Bride of KP, uh, Bride of Killer Pinata. Mm-hmm. So that'll shoot from the end of August till the middle of October. And so that'll probably take up all of our time for about the next nine to 10 months. <laughs> So since our listeners, because you have to, there are a very specific set of circumstances in which you would be able to view a dollar baby. Is there some some of your work that you would like to point our listeners to, to introduce them to what you do? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, if you go to our YouTube, which is under Angry Mule Productions, that has, I think, all of our shorts, except for a very tight place. And uh, a lot of our stuff on Killer Pinata, so it gives you a sense. And then when Boogeyman's ready to go, which I think will be next month, we'll we'll launch it there as well. We try to just throw everything up on YouTube and, and get it out to the world. Awesome. Do you have a favorite that's on there? It's a good question. It's a, it's, it's a, <laughs> it's a tough question. Uh, it's funny because my my wife, she says a very tight place is her favorite. Yeah. She's like, hands down, that one is, <laughs> is my absolute favorite. So I don't know that I can pick a favorite because I like them for different reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm not, I don't have enough distance yet. Maybe in a couple of years, I'll be like, eh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe once the, the wall of posters behind you fills up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it'll be when there's like not enough room and I have to decide which posters go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's a great <laughs> rating system. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, before we wrap things up, Devin, do you have anything else you wanted to, to throw in and talk about? No, this has just been, this has been wonderful. Um, I'm so happy that this film festival has landed me on your guys' show. Not like the interview, but I was unaware of Dairy Public Radio. First of all, I love the title. And <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, this is really cool. They you know are going through books and, and doing these amazing things. So um, this has all just been really fun. I'm glad we were able to like put this together and that you guys were open to having me on the show. That's it's been great. Absolutely. Building that community I, step by step, you know? I love talking to filmmakers who love horror. It's just yeah. so it's so fun to have those conversations. You don't get to have those every day. You most people are kind of like, oh, you're okay, well, bye. <laughs> I won't talk to you, weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I like talking to horror filmmakers about horror too because it very much feels like and, and I've mentioned this before, but it's like magicians talking to magicians because you're trying to figure out how to pull off these tricks. Um, <laughs> the genre lends itself to that, so it's kind of like, cool. How do you do that? Oh, awesome! All right, All right well, once again, uh, a huge thank you, Stephen. Thank you so much for taking the time to come talk to us. <laughs> yeah, Josh CM, this has been great. Congratulations on the show, and I'll be listening to future episodes. Fantastic. For Stephen Tramontana and CM Alexander, this is Joshua Khan reminding you, never underestimate the importance of translation and adaptation. Hey everyone, CM Alexander here. Thank you for listening to our interview with Stephen. We had so much fun talking to him about his dollar baby, A Very Tight Place. You can follow his work on Facebook at Angry Mule, and there's a link there and in our show notes for his YouTube channel. After talking to Stephen, Josh and I watched Eyelash, and I gotta say, five out of five blue chambray shirts. Check it out. If you missed the Stephen King Rules Dollar Baby Film Festival, here's the haiku for a very tight place. A bad deal done twice. Don't dump your problems on me. Truly man's best friend. That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye.